God's holy word says in John 1, 14 to 18, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. And John testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And verse 16 continues, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is at the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. This morning's prayer is coming to you from our dear friend, Dr. Varner, in his new book, The Handbook for Praying Scripture. Let me go to the Lord, and let's do it together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, your word teaches us in Psalm 34 that we are to bless you, Yahweh, at all times. Your praise should be continually in our mouths. Our souls are to make our boast in you, Father, the humble will hear it and rejoice. Help us to magnify you, God, this morning. And let us together exalt your son's precious name. We pray. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you may have been to uh, Scotland, perhaps, wasn't expecting a woo there, but I'm glad for it. Under the battlements of the Edinburgh Castle, there stands a church. And that church has an inscription that is on its walls. And it reads the following. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. That sounds good, doesn't it? Comes from 1 Timothy 2.5. We would expect to see that on perhaps many church buildings. What you might not realize at this church happens to be a Unitarian church. And if you know the Unitarian faith, they've actually used this very part of Scripture to support their denominational assertion that says that Jesus was only a man. They are implying that the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy that Jesus is not God the Son who has come in flesh. And the author continues in this article that I read of this, and he says, this is a classic example of a text taken out of context, which becomes a pretext. That sounds very academic. Let me give you the English version. A pretext is a pretended reason for doing something that is used to hide the real reason. First Timothy 2, in proper context, Paul was concerned not at this point about his humanity, but rather about the deity, divinity, of Jesus Christ. 
Sound familiar? Four weeks ago, we started in John 1, 1 to verse 3. It feels like a long time ago, doesn't it, already? And in John 1, 1 to 3, I made the assertion that all false religions look to distort and contort the identity of Jesus Christ. And that first sermon was called The Word. And then we moved from week two together to John 1, verses 4 and 5, and repeated verses 1 to 3. And that was called The Life. And you remember that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was transitioned in the Old Testament where it was in the beginning was God. But John takes it and says, no, no, in the beginning also was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God in John 1.1. 1, 1. And then we moved from the life to the testimony or the witness of John the Baptist. And the image that I showed you for the last two weeks was Martin Luther with one hand on the Bible and one hand pointing to the cross and Christ on the cross and the people's eyes affixed not to the preacher but to the cross. And that was the testimony or the witness of John the Baptist. And last week we spent time dwelling on who are the children of God. All of this is in the prologue of John's gospel. That means the introduction, if you will, to John's gospel. And this morning we are in one of the most treasured texts of all of scripture. My job is so hard this morning. I am taking something so familiar to you, something that we've been reading and memorizing for the last four weeks in our key memory verse. And now we're going to expound it and dive into John 1.14. This is the Christmas story. You know, here's something for you to think about. If somebody asks you today, define Christmas without using the birth narrative of Jesus, without using the parents of Jesus, without using the miracles of Jesus, how would you define Christmas? And here's my assertion, John 1.14. And the word, God's word tells us, became flesh. All false religions contort and distort the identity of Jesus Christ. Here's what they tried to do. Emphasize more of the humanity or more of the deity, but distance the two of them so they do not harmonize in the identity of Jesus Christ. So here's the outline for those that take notes this morning. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. Verse 14. The word greater than John the Baptist is the second point. So the first, all of them are going to have the word. So if you just like to put a little hash marks down or however you want to do it, they're all going to start with the word. So the second one is the word greater than John the Baptist. Verse 15. The third point will be the word Seeing God's glory, verse 16. And finally, the word greater than Moses, verses 17 through 18. So the word became flesh. The word greater than John the Baptist. The word seeing God's glory. And finally, 
the word greater than Moses. Here's the big idea. For those that want to leave after it, you're going to catch it automatically, okay? So here it is. Please write this down. This took a long time for me to get it this short. So humor me by at least writing. Grace and truth. Grace and truth came through the glorious incarnate word. Grace and truth came through the glorious and incarnate word. Let me repeat it one more time. Grace and truth came through the glorious and incarnate word. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Here's two questions I want you to be wrestling with through this sermon and through this week. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? See, for you to, to counter false religions and for me to be able to counter, we have to be able to answer these two questions with crystal clarity. And here are the answers. The first question that I'm asserting is, why must the Redeemer be truly God? Answer from the New City Catechism. And if you don't catch all of this, send me an email. I'm happy to send you the answers to these just so you don't have to write so much. But listen carefully to the words. That because of his, meaning Jesus Christ, divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. And that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. That's taken from Acts 2 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There's another question I want you to wrestle with. Why did the Son of God need to become man? The answer is twofold. The reason that he became man was to die. As God, he could not die for sinners. Have you ever thought of that? But as man, he could. And therefore, he had to be born human to die. He was born to die. Jesus became the man, therefore, to save us from our sins and present those who believe in him by faith as faultless before the presence of God, the Father, with exceeding joy. That's grounded on 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one mediator between God and man, the man, catch the word, the man, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. The big idea, grace and truth, came through the glorious incarnate word. We'll be covering five verses. Now, I've been told in the last few weeks that my sermons are getting longer. So... I will tell you, this first point will be the dominant point. Okay, so in advance, if you wonder how eight pages in, Chris is still on point one. That's because of the importance of point one. Okay, so here we go. This unspeakable good news appears 14 verses into John's gospel. So I gave you the first point. The word became flesh. It has four subpoints. 
And here they are. The word. A. The word. For the first time since John 1, the Greek term logos or logos appears. So the logos is back. And from eternity past, the Son of God existed in perfect love, joy, and harmony and fellowship. God was not lonely. But out of his abundance of love, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Like the Father and the Spirit, he was spirit, meaning Jesus. He had no material substance. Have you ever thought of that? Before John 1, 14. And the word becomes flesh. The incarnation refers literally to the infleshing of the eternal Son of God. Let me read to you a quote. It's better than what I would think of. A commentator says it as follows. The doctrine of the incarnation claims that the eternal second person of the Trinity took on humanity in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The eternal divine son has been born of a woman, Galatians 4, 4. He came into the likeness of man, Philippians 2, 7, and was manifested or made known in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3, 16. Jesus shared in the flesh and the blood through the death that he might destroy the power of death. Why was Jesus born? He was born to die. And he would defeat, did you catch the two questions? Why must he be man? Because God can't die. Why must he be God? Because God has a perfect plan and is sinless. And the harmony of these two beautiful realities is the central crucible, the hinge pin on which Christianity stands and falls. For if Jesus came to live and die, as I said a week ago, and the, the tomb was still sealed, then we would be pitied beyond all people. But you remember the image I showed you last week was Martin Luther's tomb, still sealed, but the tomb of Christ, or representative tomb of Christ, we don't know exactly which one it is, open. And the Bible confirms that. And the body, gone, raised. The power of death has been defeated, past tense. Therefore, the hope that we have is eternal. That's the crucible. That's where Christianity hinges on. John Murray adds, the son of God was sent in the very nature in every other instance of mankind was sinful, but not Christ. But Jesus was born of a virgin by the power of God alone. He was not supernaturally conceived. Do you want to know what a heresy is? A heresy says, oh, he just looked like he was flesh. Do you know how many times you read the Bible where you see Jesus doing things like eating? Even post-resurrection, you see them eating together, touching the wounds, feeling the hands, washing the feet. Jesus was fully man. Here's something I want you to ponder this week. Do you know Jesus 
never loses his humanity? Did you know that? It wasn't taken on for 30-odd years. It was taken on for eternity going forward. That's how much God loves you. That's how much God loves you. The word became flesh, B, under point one, and dwelt among us. This is one of the most beautiful little statements in all of Scripture. Here's what it means. In all of the Old Testament, we have a term in its original language, which is translated tabernacle. So some of your versions of your Bibles might say he came and dwelt. If you go to other versions, it might actually say tabernacle. And what that means, it goes all the way back to Exodus 25, verse 9. The original word is called skenau. The Greek speakers would have called to mind the tabernacle instantly, where God met Israel before the temple was built. You have to remember, this was not written in English. So when they heard that the skenai, which is a version thereof, the people instantly would have reconciled in their minds back to Exodus 25. The Jewish readers would have drawn back to the wilderness. They would have drawn back with the presence of God among his people. Exodus 40, verses 34 to 38. Listen to God's word. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Same underlying word. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled in it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Second reference. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle. You catch it? God's presence in the Old Testament dwelt, tabernacled among his people in a location. But now, we see God tabernacling with Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. Do you realize how critical this was? This is the hinge on which Christianity turns. We're going to learn in a little bit later through the sermon. Do you remember the scene where Moses begs God to see his glory. What does God do? He says, you cannot see my face and live. And he takes him and he hides him in the cleft of a rock. And God passes by. He says, you're permitted not to look at my face, but at the back of me. For if you saw my face, you would surely die. And now... The very face, the very glory of God, the visible of the invisible, Jesus Christ, dwells in tabernacles among his people. How beautiful. This is an immediate tense to the verb, but it also has a future reality. For Jesus would live among them. He would die among them, but he would rise among them. And Jesus will come again one day. 
Emmanuel did not put on flesh for a season, but united himself to mankind so that he could become the sacrificial lamb once and for all. He came to die. Do you remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? The curtain tore. You may have passed over that and thought, well, that's an interesting little fact. Do you remember what it says in the Bible? The curtain tore which direction? From top to bottom. Reconciling God to humanity in the ability for us to access. No longer is the curtain dividing us out of the Holy of Holies. For God not only has dwelt, tabernacled in through the life of Jesus Christ, but Jesus says, I, it's better for me to go. For when I go, I will send the Holy Spirit to what word? Dwell, tabernacle in the children of God. Same word. How beautiful. Emmanuel did not put on flesh for a season. He put on flesh for eternity for it. He came to die. The tabernacle was not restricted to the Old Testament usage. In John 1.14, four more times. Remember I said it also points forward. Listen to this. From Revelation, four more times do we read of the tabernacle. The references are Revelation. Somebody said to me this week, when you give us quotes, you give them too fast. Here we go. I'm doing it slower. <laughs> Revelation 7, 15. Okay, nobody's writing, so it doesn't matter. Revelation 12, 12. Revelation 12, 12. Revelation 13, 6. And Revelation 21, 3. I'm going to read to you two of them. This, I want you to just take your hearts and your minds and look upwards right now figuratively to what I'm going to read to you. Revelation 7, 15 to 17. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Same word. They will hunger no longer, no longer thirst, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat for the lamb is at the center of the throne. And he'll be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Revelation 21, two to four. We're at the end of the Bible now. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven and from God, made ready with a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, same word of God, is among men. And he will dwell, same word, among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death. Why is there no longer any death? Because he has defeated death. And there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. And the first things have passed away. The point is this. Jesus did not just dwell with them and there only, but as children of God, we will be able to have the radiant sun dwell among us eternally. 
If something fires you up, it should be this. I mean, how glorious is that thought? How glorious. The promised Holy Spirit currently dwells and resides in true believers, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? To the praise of his glory. First point C. So we've dissected the word becoming flesh, and we have spent time dwelling and tabernacling. And the third point is this. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. In case you're taking notes, it's the verse. So don't feel like you have to catch all this. It's the third part of the same verse. Some translations read the glory of the one and the only, which gets at the point so that the glory is displayed in the sun derives from or is granted from the one and only. He's the beloved son. So God, as we have learned, is one, right? But three. And the complexity here is the radiance of the sun is making manifest or making known the glory of the Father. That's the key point under this. When John sees the glory of the Son, it is the glory of God the Father which he has witnessed. Don't forget, John can't get over this. He can't get over this. He Remember how he describes his name? He never calls himself John. What does he call himself? The one whom Jesus loved. And that's exactly how you want to be known. Okay, because if you have a choice to be known as John or John the Apostle or John the Disciple or the one whom Jesus loved, you're going to pick the one whom Jesus loved. He is literally leaning on God. And he can't get over it because he knows who's there with him. He is, don't forget, one of three that goes where? Up the mountain. You can see in his Writing, he is consumed with the identity of Christ. And he is letting us know that this is the radiance, the glory of the very Father. Back to Exodus 33, 18. Moses says to the Father, God, show me your glory. And an author from a a magazine called Expositors Magazine. It's a real fancy title. It's just kind of a preaching thing that's out there. It says this. And it's a fabulous magazine, by the way. Faithful. He says this. This request was made to Moses from the Lord's acceptance, listen carefully, of his intercession on behalf of idolatrous Israel. God had threatened the removal of his presence from his people because of their sin. And according to the narrative, Moses pleading for God to relent from this unthinkable occurrence was successful. Moses was subsequently emboldened to ask God to reveal to him his glory on the rock in Horeb. He has shown the back parts of God, his grace, his mercy, and his covenantal faithfulness. 
protected by the hand of God from being exposed and annihilated by the full measure of the glory of God. Moses glimpses of something of God's sovereign goodness. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and called as he called upon the name of the Lord, Exodus 34, 5. Moses could only see the back parts of God. But in Christ, we have the radiant beauty of the Father. But we, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, we see the glory of God, not in the back parts, catch the word, in the face of Christ. You see the difference? God has now come and tabernacle dwelt among us. And we have seen the radiance. John was literally writing about the glory of God. He could not get over the glory of God as he witnessed in the face and demonstrated through the life and the orientation of the Son to the Father. He reclined on the Son. He loved the Son. The Son loved him. And he's, for, for John, it's all about Jesus. He opens in John 1.1 1, 1 with the word and he finishes in John 21 with the word. Cover to cover, Coast to coast, it's all about Christ. He doesn't even name his own name. It's all about Christ. Everything in the Old Testament looks forward to that moment. Remember, we talked about those years of silence. The 400 years and 500, depending on how you look at the writings and the prophecies and such. And now God speaks. Fourth point, under one. The word became flesh, the first part dwelt among us, second part, we have seen his glory of the only begotten from the Father, and it ends full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. God's glory is manifested or made known in the incarnate word Jesus, who was and is full of grace and truth. This almost certainly directed the readers and listener of John's gospel right back to Exodus 33 to 34, in which Moses begs God, show me your glory as we have dwelt among already this morning. The Lord's gracious accommodation of Moses would have come to their minds, and it now comes to ours. You recall that as the Lord passes by it continues in exodus 34 5 through 7 the lord compassionate and gracious god slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion the two words love and faithfulness indicate a steadfast love a mercy and a covenantal love the pair of expressions grace and truth are synonymous to love and faithfulness. This is John's way of summing up the same idea. Let me put it to you simply. Grace and truth can be summed up like this. Grace is an undeserved gift from God offered in and through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ if we believe by faith. That's grace. Unmerited grace. Grace is not only provides a way for restitution, grace upon grace. Think about this. Not only does God provide 
the way. He provides the means. The word became flesh. Why did Jesus come to live? He came to live as man to die. So that, there's the reasoning, we may live eternally with God and be reconciled if we believe by faith. This is grace. Grace is not only the idea that God provides the way, but he provides the means. And not only does he provide the means, he provides his only son. That's grace. John 14, 6. The means of salvation is clarified. Jesus' own words, he says this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me, exclusive salvation. It's not one of many paths, it's the only path. Anybody tells you different? They're reading a different Bible. It is not one of many ways. It is the only way. Because we needed the Son, fully God and fully man, to make restitution to a holy God. So what is truth? If we know what God's grace is, what is truth? Truth defines the only means to salvation. I am the way and the truth. Aletheia in Greek. Truth is not only the means, truth is now a lens. And I want you to pay real close attention to what I'm going to say right now. The world tries to contort and distort what I'm going to say to you to confuse you. Because if you can get close to the truth or you can integrate other things and pretend like they are the truth, what happens is you've blurred what is truth. What do I mean by that? Truth is a lens from which to understand all other proposed measures of truth. God's truth. See, we don't hold this and other things on parallel, do we? We don't. In fact, our lens comes through this to then interpret what comes beyond this. For example, there's only one truth that stands above others, and this is the varied words words revealed in God's word. Sciences, arts, are they helpful? Yes. But they must be interpreted through God's word. It's not held in parallel where when they say, well, this is science and this is God's word. And now we take it as a grid and we try to merge them in together. No, it's not the way we do this. We start with God's word. We end with God's word. And everything is subservient and held under God's word. Truth is only found in and through the lens of scripture. Okay. False teachers, false teachings, false religions contort, distort the bedrock of the word of God. They twist, they deceive. I wrestled with the big, big idea. This one I tried to make pithy and short for you. So for those that are note takers, here's, here's my best attempt. When the Bible does not work for false teachers, they relativize, they rationalize, they compartmentalize, and they sanitize God's word. Relativize, rationalize, compartmentalize, and sanitize God's word. We see it every day. Everywhere we're around us, did God's word really say? We're back into Genesis, aren't we? 
In the end, little gods, small g, will answer to the one true God, big G. For the same apostle who wrote this book is also credited with writing the book of Revelation. You probably know that. And at the end of the book of Revelation, three verses to the end, John writes this. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life, from the holy city, which are written in this book. Friends, this is not something we trifle with. We don't look to compartmentalize. We don't look to relativize. We don't look to sanitize God's word. We look to understand it and apply it. It's not a small thing to distort the word of God, but rather the same strategy that Satan has used since beginning and will use to the very end until he's finally defeated. It's an act of deception that leads to sin, death, separation from a holy God. Let us never do that. Let us hold fast. John 1.15 you're saying, finally, Chris, we're moving out of John 1.14. I could dwell and tabernacle here a lot longer with you. In fact, my hope and prayer, if the Lord allows us, we'll come back to John 1.14 on Christmas morning. John 1.15. John the Apostle draws back to the herald or the witness, John the Baptist. Now, this one is literally a paragraph. So there you go. John the Baptist. So the word greater than John the Baptist, verse 15. God's word says in verse 15, John testified about him and cried out saying, this was he whom I said comes after me, has a higher rank than me. For, that's the grounding, he existed before me. What does this do? It takes us right back to John 1, 1. Simple. How do I know that? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. See, John here is saying, look, it's not about me. I'm the I am not, he is the I am. It has nothing to do with John. He must increase, I must decrease. The great I am is here, and John the apostle knows it. It has nothing to do with John the Baptist. And John the apostle, by the way, is saying, guess what? It's nothing to do with me either. It's all about Christ. And for these reasons of him, he is consumed, speaking about praising about Jesus and John the author through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has eyes to see that the Son is indeed God. Seeing God's glory. Point three. Told you that one was quick. Okay? Verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This point I wrestled with calling it seeing with new eyes, taken from David Powlison. But I put seeing God's glory because our seeing with new eyes isn't for just new lenses. It's the purpose of why we're seeing is to see the glory of God. So the, the main idea is this. This, by the way, was the hardest part for me to dissect of all this part of Scripture. I couldn't understand how it fit. And I asked the elders this week in a meeting, and we, had a, we have a new meeting that happens on Wednesday where we actually do a full service review. And I talked to a number of the men here, and I said, I'm struggling with this text. What do you see in this text? And, and as I've wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with this text, it finally dawned on me 
that verse 16, now probably all of you are like, of course, of course, you missed it, Chris. How could it be that difficult for you? But here, here's, what I, here's, what, here's what I think it is. This is my best, my best uh, effort, and I think it's right. Uh, but I'm happy to, to talk to you afterwards if you disagree. Verse 15 has brackets. See in your Bible? Look down to your Bible. So most of your Bibles, if not all of them, will have uh, brackets, or many of them will have brackets around verse 15. And so what I think is happening is verse 16 is interconnected in a way that we don't normally write English. I actually think verse 16 and verse 14 are connected, and verse 15, like we saw before, where all of a sudden we're talking about John the Baptist, and you're like, where'd he come from? I think that's what's happening here in verse 15. It's a thought by divine inspiration that he cannot help but pen. But I think 16 and 14 interconnect. And here's how, if you read 14 and 16 together, here's how, it, here's how it flows. Listen to God's word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So what I think is happening here is John is saying that receiving grace is the reason that we see his glory. Nice and simple. Does that make sense? So we have seen his glory for we believers have past tense all received grace. This is not universalism. This does not mean all people are saved. This means particularly those that have received God's grace will receive grace upon grace. So this is not meant for all It's an an exclusion because John's word clarifies it. There has to be belief in Christ. But those that do have belief in Christ see with supernatural vision. David Pallison calls this seeing with new eyes. He has a fabulous book on this. And when we receive supernatural grace, it opens the blind eyes through faith so that we can see the glory of Christ. This is by grace and mercy of God alone, seeing with new eyes. Do you remember when Paul held the cloaks of those that were stoning Stephen? Scripture for Living this week, we were spending time in the book of Acts, and they're stoning, and and, and Saul, who would then be named Paul, the first time he enters into the Bible, we see him actually literally holding the cloaks of the people that are stoning Stephen. And Stephen looks up to God and sees Christ, not seated, but standing at the right hand. It's a position of power. He had eyes to see and a resolve to stay steadfast because his vision was not on his circumstances but on the very word of God. He saw with new eyes. Therefore, he was willingly able to lay down his life for Jesus Christ. And you probably remember the words. Father, forgive them. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Jesus, forgive them. His eyes are laser focused. Jesus from the cross echoes similar words, right? Right? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
Different versions, different texts, same idea. Different vision, seeing with new eyes, is made possible by the Holy Spirit. He who takes the following two verses and applies them to your hearts and minds this week are going to be blessed. Here's what they are. Colossians 1.19. Colossians 1.19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 1.19. Who's the him? Jesus. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Second verse, Ephesians 3.19. Ephesians 3.19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Same fullness of God in the two verses. Seeing with new eyes is due to an incomprehensible, amazing grace upon grace that's been shown to the children of God. Incomprehensible grace, amazing grace that is shown to the children of God. So, the logic of verse 14 and 16 is this. We've seen his glory for or because we have all received grace upon grace. This grace and mercy enables the seeing. I'm going to speak now to you that are believers. If we have supernatural vision, if we are seeing with new eyes, then I have three exhortations for you this week. Number one, put off the old self, put on the new. Put off, put on. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. What does this mean? It means we die to self and live to Christ. That comes from John eleven twenty five. This means we no longer live for the God of this world, in our, for we realize that our citizenship is in heaven. That comes from Philippians 3, 20 to 21. So what does that really mean? That means that we make decisions with new eyes. That means we see with new eyes. That means we recalibrate our life to no longer live for ourselves. We live for Christ. Sacrificially. For how can we live to our old self with the realization that we have been redeemed and ransomed from eternal separation and damnation? This is why Paul could truly say and mean for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's seen with new eyes. This radical reorientation. Second point under here, exhortation, is what drove John Newton to pen the words, I once was lost and blinded, but now I see. And so, What is my second exhortation? Spend time in prayer thanking God for your new vision. For you once were lost as I was. We were blinded, but now we can see. It is is our turn, dear brothers and sisters, to praise God for what he has done on our behalf. Let us have thankful hearts. Start each day with maybe a hymn. Maybe amazing grace. Maybe take some of the words and pray it back. Maybe take a book like I just did, Handbook for Praying Scripture by Dr. Varner. There's lots of them out there. Hey, here's an idea. Crazy. Why don't you just take the Bible and pray it to God? 
Open up to a psalm this week and just use the psalm and pray it back to God. How crazy is that thought? See, Jesus modeled how to pray. And I think sometimes we over-engineer. We think we have to be the most eloquent person in the room to pray and theologically train. No, take God's word and pray God's word back. It's his word. It's way better than ours. So second exhortation is with thankful hearts that we have new lenses. Don't take any credit. It's all about God. It's all about Christ. I think we should take time to pray this week with thankful hearts for that vision. So the first is, hey, put off, put on. That means make choices that reflect our new identity. Second is, are we praying with thankful hearts? And then I think the third is we have to be bold witnesses. What do I mean by that? This week I had the honor and privilege uh, to be invited to go to someone's house because they cared about people that they were around that were getting older and they were maybe failing in health and eternities hanging in the balance. And so I got to share the gospel for about an hour um, with two people. I got to tell you, that was my favorite hour of the week because I watched people that do not know Christ look me in the eyes intently, maybe couldn't hear everything I said, so I had to speak really loud. I left some stuff to try to encourage them and my cell phone number, and I said, you call me anytime, and I'm coming back. Hey, there's nothing that we're doing that's more important than sharing God's word to people that are lost and dying. It's all about Christ. So my exhortation to this week is do it. Don't hear it. Be doers of God's word. And that means don't just come to church. Invite non-Christians to church. If you really love people, tell them the truth. I didn't, you know, one of the things I said this week when I was sitting in front of this older couple, I would actually be misserving you and not loving you if I didn't share what I'm going to tell you. If I know what is on the other side of judgment and I don't share it, then I don't care about you. But if I really do care about you, and I really see you as somebody as a, made by God that is meaningful, then I have to share what I know to be true. So, sermons. I've asked Brian if he would be kind enough to take the now or in 40 minute thing that we do and shrink it down right away to just have the sermon and let's try something. Share it, right? Maybe it's daunting to have an hour and a half for someone to say, but maybe just God's word shared Let's see if we can share that with people this week. Share it. Look, we get 50, 60, 100 views on our, I want to see 500 views on our sermons from people that don't know God's word. And share others, not just ours. Find stuff that you find is helpful to you. Share it. Use social media. Share it. Don't use social media to stand for this world. You to stand for Christ. Let's prioritize with urgency in our lives that we love Christ. Praise God that grace and truth came through the glorious incarnate word. That's the big idea. Fourth point. Final point for those that are counting. 
The word greater than Moses, verse 17 to 18, is this. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. This does not mean, and this is really important, this does not mean that there was no grace and truth in the Old Testament. Rather, grace that saves through the truth that is promised in the Messiah, Jesus Christ has come. The law was good as the man through whom God revealed it through. But it was only our tutor to bring us to Christ. Galatians 3.24. So Jesus is the glory and John is contrasting Christ with Moses. Not because the law is not a precious and gracious gift. For Jesus' own words says what? I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Right? Did not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill. Matthew 5, 17. This is why in verse 16, there's a reference of receiving grace upon grace. For there is one grace, Moses giving the law, and then there's another grace that Christ brings the fullness of grace and truth. That's the meaning of what's happening here. John Piper, who is just so eloquent, I love Piper, he says it like this. Piper defines Moses in contrast to Jesus as follows. Moses points to grace, but Jesus performs grace. Moses reports the words of God, but Jesus is the word of God. And finally, the law mirrors the light of God. But Jesus is the light of God. So this contrast with Moses is continued in verse 18, the final verse. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. I love God's word. Why do you think the words in the bosom are added here? You remember the audience that would have been hearing this? They would have reckoned. They would have immediately gone in their minds back to the Moses thing and the rock thing and the cleft thing and the hiding thing and the covering thing and the seeing God's back. Mm -mm. Now Christ is described as in the very bosom of the Father. That's face to face. Much more often we see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. We talked about in Acts 7, 54 to 56, where Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father, but that's not how he's described here. He is described as in the very bosom of the Father. This particular reference to the bosom of the Father, if you have the NASB, New American Standard, or King James, or the Legacy Standard Version, you'll notice that is how it's translated. Other versions have different translated. I love this version for this verse. So I said to you when we started together, there's sometimes where I'll go off of into other versions for a reason. This one I'm not. This is a unique place of intimacy, stark contrast. And the Jew would vividly Remember, recall the account in Exodus where the Lord placed Moses in the cleft. Here instead we have a perfect unity of the Father and the Son and the radiant glory which is described in Exodus 33.20. Unseeable by mankind, 
for you cannot see my face. No one will see my face and live. And here we have the son in the bosom of the father and the son in the glorious image of the father. Colossians 1, 15. 1 Timothy 2, 5 adds, Jesus reveals the invisible God to us because and only because he is the eternal son made through the incarnation. So I spoke to the believers, the children of God. Let me close by speaking to those that are not. If you're listening to me and you hear the words, but you do not believe yet, I implore you two things. Repent of your sins. And turn to Jesus by faith. For without Jesus, you're like Adam and Eve. Do you remember last week we talked about Adam and Eve? What was their solution? Let's take some fig leaves and let's cover. How's that working for you? Right? And God says, no, that's, that covering isn't going to work. So he provides a different means, a temporal means, an annualized means, until the son comes as the very lamb of God that will become the permanent means to take away the sins of the world. A permanent covering, not a temporal covering for those that believe in faith. You're just as guilty as Cain who killed his brother. And so was I. We learned of in Genesis 4 this morning. All have sinned, Romans 3, 23. These are the two verses I shared to this elderly couple. I thought, boy, if they don't kick me out of this, they're either not able to kick me out or they still can't hear me or maybe they're still in the game, so to speak, of listening to me. And here are the two verses I shared with them. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. And Romans 6, 23 adds, For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Take the gift and believe. That's my exhortation to you. It's not three parts. We have three, you have one. Actually two. Repent and turn in faith. So you have two, we have three. But I'll promise you, if you follow those two, it'll be the best day of your life. To those uncovered by his hand, the sight of the glory means death. But to those hidden by him through faith in Christ Jesus, that same glory means life, protection, and eternal peace. Repent and believe. Believe in Jesus who is greater than John the Baptist. Greater than Moses. Believe in Jesus who took on flesh, not temporarily, but permanently through his sacrificial death. Believe in Jesus who came to live, to die. Believe in Jesus who was vindicated when he was resurrected and defeated death. Believe in Jesus who will come again and judge the living and the dead. Praise God. Grace and truth came through the glorious incarnate word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father. On behalf of your children here today, I want to express our thankfulness for your plan of redemption. I want to thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to come to live, to die in our place. And finally, I want to thank you, Holy Spirit, who made our dead hearts alive for those that are in Christ, to giving us new sight, new vision, for opening our eyes, that once we're blinded to the glorious truths that we've heard today, 
And may you, Father, use this sermon for your eternal purposes and for your glory alone. 